and then I worked at the Boys and Girls Club off campus for about four and a half years. And I started to see that financial illiteracy or the lack of financial education in just the normal day people is so lacking that it causes so many other issues from relationship issues to psychology to, you know, mental health, et cetera. And it really started to hone me in on like, I need to do something different. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Story Hall, welcome to Bridging the Gap, my friend. How, uh, how are you? How's everything in your part of the world? Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, it's turning cold. Okay, we'll put it that way. It is in the 50s, lows in the 38s. Midwest winters are, are arriving. Outside of that, doing pretty damn well. I love it. I love it. And I was fortunate to be on your podcast. Super grateful for you having me. We had a great conversation. Usually when I'm talking a lot, I always feel it's a great conversation, whether it is or not. But I'm super stoked to have you here. I think that your perspective of how to build an advisory firm and and what an advisor's impact is and what we need to focus on in our clients' lives to really drive value is refreshing. And I think there's a lot of alignment between that. So I'm super, I'm excited to dive into that with you and have you share your perspective and kind of uh, that story. But before we dive into that part of the show or the podcast, you know, I'm curious, what did the 20 or what did the 13 year old Story Hall want to be? Was this kind of like the the vision for Story Hall? But what, what was the vision of the 13 year old Story Hall of what professional grown up life looked like? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't I didn't have, you know, a father and a brother that has a firm. So no, financial was not even in the realm of possibilities. It was two possibilities. I wanted to be a Navy SEAL or I wanted to be an NFL player or baseball MLB player. That was my three options. I didn't have anything else. Growing up around a family that's not really financially educated, like money was always a, a stressor. And so I know I knew my way out was sports, right? Sports or the military. Um, I got lucky enough to be good enough to go play collegiate football at Drake University. And that's what I did. But my 13 year old self had one, two goals. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL or I'm playing. I'm continuing to play sports. That was about you it. wanted to be a bad person, yes. right? That yeah. is I mean, either way, an NFL player or a Navy SEAL. I mean, gosh, awesome ambitions. And it, it, everybody's story is so interesting of, of kind of their background, because that is like what makes us all unique. And, and it drives to kind of the journey that you go on. And so tell, tell us a little bit more about what happened between 13 year old story hall and today's story hall after collegiate football. And like, how did you find yourself running and, and building black mammoth and trying to change wealth management industry for the better? Yeah, absolutely. So ended up going to Drake University. And what really changed for me was two things. One, my first uh, accounting exam was a blank piece of paper. And you just put your name and stuff on it. And I just sat there. I had to build a balance sheet income statement. And I was like, ha, I got a 40% on it. So I realized accounting wasn't it. So that one drove me away from accounting into finances. And then I worked at the Boys and Girls Club off campus for about four and a half years. And I started to see that financial illiteracy or the lack of financial education in just the normal day people is so lacking that it causes so many other issues from relationship issues to psychology to, you know, mental health, et cetera. And it really started to hone me in on like, I need to do something different and better. And so after college, I went through the insurance route, you know, did the whole 1031 sell life insurance situation. And really started to understand that like none of that mattered. Like, yes, life insurance is important. Let's be real. 
but someone's financial plan should dictate what the next step is. And so left there, joined a firm down in Houston, love what they do, still partner to this day. We're good friends, but I wanted to take it to another level, a degree that I didn't see much in the industry I never knew about. And that's more of the family office role. I call it the modern family office because, right, it's not for 25 million and above, but that same idea of having a team able to basically do everything for you so you can focus on your family and and making money or your job. And so when Black Mammoth came out in 2020, that was the vision, that was the purpose. And we've just, you know, honed it in even more so since then. But that's where it all started. I, I love that, man. That's such a great and inspiring story. And, and and you're making an impact. You saw a need and a differentiated opportunity and, and you went after it. And, you know, when you think about the modern family office, I love that concept and that idea. Talk to me more about what does the modern family office look like? How how does it feel to the end client? How does it look differently, like from an advisor's perspective of of that world? What what is that, what's that all all look like? Right. So how we usually operate as planners or advisors is, you know, we take in their assets, we deal with their investments, we'll do some planning, we'll give them a plan and they do a lot of the implementation. We just oversee it and help them make decisions. I found out that a lot of clients are like, I love that. That's cool and all. However, I have other answers and questions, right? And some of that leads to dealing with an attorney, or maybe I need a lender because I need to go buy a car. Or my one of my most favorite recent stories was one of my older clients, and I don't have very old clients, but one of my older clients, she got in a car accident, called me a couple days later, and I was like, well, first of all, are you okay? Because like you didn't tell me. But she needed, she was dealing with insurance, but she needed a new car and lending. I called up the dealership, called up the lender, said, this is what she wants. I want a test drive set up. Lender, I want it ready. If she wants to buy it, she can do it. And so by the time she even test drove, she knew that she could, one, purchase it, and two, that's what she wanted. And the next day she picked up her car. Those are things that the the traditional side of us don't do that the modern family offices can step in and do and really oversee and have that, that, that teammate or that partner in these meetings that clients don't aren't comfortable with, right? Whether it's mm. with an attorney or whether it is about something else, a business related issue, we're able to be side by side with them so they can be comfortable and know, hey, I've got someone in my court no matter the situation. I mean, I, I can see that and I feel like how that experience would be. And I, I, I'm, I'm curious from your standpoint, because one of your, I know one of your goals is that you want financial literacy to everybody in the world. And I, I think that that's a, I am aligned to that ambitious goal and let's go after and get it. And the impact that you're making is, is is great. I think that one of the challenges traditional advisors have is thinking about efficiency and scalability and how to do that to more people. And so I'm curious from your perspective, like what, what do you say to that kind of pushback or how have you focused on building the modern financial firm or family office in a way that allows you to serve so many more people that helps you to then push towards your, your goal of because heck, if you reach your goal, you're going to have a lot of clients knocking on your door. And so how does that look inside of from your mind? Yeah. So really, I can take on about 46 clients. That's where my the way I've built it, 46 per CFP, if you will. Um, and that's not a lot, right? Everyone's talking about 100 or, you know, some of them with just investments only have 1,000. And the, the true thing is you can't do this work on a scale like that unless you have more people in order to do so. And it's not for everyone, right? Not everyone's going to fit this mold and that's okay. 
as this builds and as we, you know, rid the world of financial literacy, you know, me and you together, right? We're going to rock, rock the world with this is we have other friends and colleagues in this industry that can take on that work. And so it's not necessarily about me having unlimited clients. It's about getting those clients that want someone to help them into someone else who's a planner who can do that as well and growing our industry as well, because we need more great planners. There's not enough of us. We talked about that on my podcast. There's not enough of us to go around no matter how many or how less of people right now. There's not enough quality planners right now. And we need to address both issues. One being the prospective clients out there, the society out there being educated enough to be ready to hire someone and then have enough of us to actually be able to bring that value to them and help them. Yeah, there's been a lot of, you've had a ton of impact of trying to help with diversity in our industry and, and bringing more interest into our industry. What, From your perspective, what is the challenge of getting more great talent into our industry? What, why is it so difficult from your view? Yeah, so first and foremost is because there's not a lot of liked looking people, right? I'm a black male. I never even knew one financial person except for my uncle like my entire life all the way through college, right? And that's a long time to go without seeing another black male in this industry that is, mm. is prominent like that. So you've got that, but you got that across races and genders, et cetera. There's just not enough, right? That's one. The other part is honestly the insurance business. The, the burnout rate is so, so high. If you're lucky enough to survive three to five years, I don't know if that's luck or just dumb, <laughs> but you make it and then you figure it out. Now, does it weed people out? Yes. But that is such a huge, huge overcoming thing that a lot of people just don't have the strength to get to. And so those two factors, I believe, make up the majority of the reason why we don't have better talent and we don't have more talent is because those are huge hurdles to get through. Yeah, let's go down that path. How do we how do we overcome that? I know that like a simple answer is just like, let's go hire more diversity, but like it's a chicken and the egg challenge, right? Because you need more diversity to inspire more diversity, but we don't have the diversity that to inspire the diversity. And so you can't go get the diversity. So it's like a, it's a really round, yeah. difficult challenge. How, how do we go about as an industry to help, help to start solving that? We just help each other be louder. That's, that's an, a mission of mine is just be loud doing these, right? Doing these podcasts and doing content and putting it more and more and more out there and showing everybody who we are as planners individually, but also as an industry of what we really are, I believe is the one easiest route for us all to do. Because the more we talk about, the more we're heard, the more people are going to be like, oh, hey, I kind of like the industry. I, I kind of like what they do, right? I mean, they're, they're do content on Monday and Fridays and only see clients Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Like, that's awesome. I want to do that. But they don't know about it because we don't talk about it. We hide behind compliance. If you're at a, gi a giant BD, they hide behind compliance and they only want industry specific terminology out there. They don't want everyone to know our day to day. Right. And that's the issue. It's that transparency. Mm. Yeah, so true, man. I, I I agree with you on that. You know, and, and then thinking about the industry as a whole and the value that we provide, right? The value that is derived. I think that there's still a perception that wealth management is investment guys and gals. And, you know, I still get asked, like when I'm out, like, what do you think about this stock? And I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. And they're like, what? You're in the investment business. I'm like, 
No, I'm in the happiness business. And, and and there's still this perception. So from your perspective, like what is what do you see as the core value you provide to your clients? And and how do you help them to understand that value is not performance? It's something intangible. Yeah. I used to say peace of mind because that's what was driven into me from the insurance side of things. Along those lines, though, is do they have someone in their court when things get tough? Honestly, that's what they want. They want to know, is there someone looking out for me in every situation? And that's where the value comes from because that's what we're doing, right? And that's a very simple way of saying it, but that's what we're doing. When you look at an entire financial plan, there's nothing that we don't uncover or think about or have options and plan B's and C's and D's that the clients may not know about, but when it happens, our experience kicks in and we, and we can make a change. And so it's that peace of mind. It is that ability to have someone in their court that the value comes from. And I really, really drive home that investments don't mean much. And yes, I get a lot of flack from that from our industry, but it's true in regards to everything that they're doing. And our client conversations really don't equate to investments. We'll do it every quarter. I'll send something out. We'll talk about their investments in terms of where we're at reaching their goal. But ultimately it's about how are you guys feeling? What's coming up? What's been going on? And and letting them know, hey, you're good. Yeah, no, we're on track. You're good. Or hey, let's back down on the investment stuff because you need more cash flow flexibility because you got in a car accident or you know someone does have health issues. It's okay. It's okay to not max everything out and put everything into investments. We need to take care of you now, here and now. And over time and over those conversations, um, my clients specifically have started to realize like, yeah, investments are what they are, right? We can take care of those, but not having the cash flow flexibility and the ability to just live life how we want, that means a lot more than just a 10% return. You know, that's interesting because it, it spurred this question that that we've talked about a little bit uh, before and that I have is like, uh, because my next question was like, well, how do you show that value to the client, right? Like it's a, it's a hard it's a hard value to show that I am there in times of need because we forget those times once we move past them. And showing a performance return is easier to show value, especially when it's done good. But in reality, it's it, I guess the, the question really gets to is how do you show value of a relationship, right? Like how do you show that a friend is valuable? Like that is what we're trying to do, right? Is that not the way, is that what we're actually at in this industry is that our value is the relationship itself and then the challenge is, is that there is no tangible value of how you value someone's relationship. Like I don't, I, I, I value my wife because of her love and support for me. Right. But there's no, I can't point like a, I can, it's hard to put like an ROI numerical value on it. So how do you help your clients see that as you move forward? And like, what's your thoughts on, on that with regards to the industry? Yeah, it's probably the hardest and most tough thing to answer. Right. And I don't know. I actually don't think there is an answer. It's a feel thing. And our industry is very terrified about the feel stuff, but it truly is a feel thing. And I've had clients fire me and I just had a few fire me in the last couple of months because I'm raising my fees for the first time, by the way, um, in five years in January. And my response to them is, I understand that's what's best for you guys. And when I look back at them, they were more focused on the investment returns and all of that and weren't getting the full picture of the value of everything else. And that's okay, ultimately. But it did it discredit? Did it do anything in terms of our relationship? No, right? 
that is a very easier conversation to have with someone that you care about and you're friends with than it is if they're not. And so, yes, you're right. Our industry is now changing to building as much friendship as possible, right? Mm. And bringing them into that degree. And that's where the value is. How do you put a number to it? How do you put a finger on it? That's kind of up for up to, you know, your client to feel. And I equate it back to like art, right? It, it, that's what we do is art. I look at an art piece and I'm not very artistic and I go, I think my six-year-old could do that. Uh, but it's worth $1.2 million and it just sold for 1.5 and everyone's like, Ooh, ah, and I'm over here going, I am guarantee. I, I think my son can do that, but it's, you know, in the eye of the beholder and how they feel about what they're getting. And that is what we need to exude out there. But it's also what we all collectively need to tell those stories too. So those people who are out there, those art collectors can see, oh, there's other types of art out there that fit me. And I really love Matt, right? I want yeah. Matt. I didn't know he was out there, but I listened to Stoy on his podcast and I love what they're saying. I want to go to Matt and it needs to be to that point. Yeah, that is, I think, the hardest aspect of this change that you and I are aligned on is 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 transitioning that not only in the in the advisor side and how they interact with them, but also in the world perception of when they walk into a wealth manager's office, what to expect. And if they walk in and they and they then have conversations about their feelings, they're going to be like, where the hell am I? Right. Like, what am I doing? And so it's like that is a massive like cultural shift change that takes decades to do. But the only way to do this is have conversations and, 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 and not to back away from the challenge that is presented on it, but take it head on and try to figure out how to overcome some of the, the small bits of it because there are hurdles in that process. There's huge sure. hurdles, right? I mean, it's emotional. Like it's, it's a huge deal. We have mental health issues in the country to begin with. Throw money on top of that. And then throw, oh, I'm going to go talk to my planner and all he wants to talk about is my feelings. Like that is huge. It really is. But it is it is our duty to try to pull that out as much as possible and really educate people to understand that the decisions you are making are driven by your emotions. And if your money is driving your emotions, then it's money is driving your decisions. And usually that ends up poorly when money's driving our decisions, right? And we all can feel that. We've all been there. Everybody, I don't care if you're worth a billion or negative 100. I, it doesn't matter, we've all been there. And so that's our job and our duty to pull that out, to help them see that. And once you do, that's where they can start to change or improve their, their overall lifestyle. And, and some of what we're talking about, it, it's a matter of us working as a community. And so I'm curious on your view yeah. as an industry, Right. What what do we need to do as an industry to, to create more collaboration? Why is collaboration such a big item on your agenda of how to make this impact? And and how do you view collaboration? And, and from your perspective, you know, to add kind of a third layer to this question is how do you see collaboration differently than you think most of the industry does? Yeah. So to start, collaboration rarely happens or has not. I've not seen it a ton globally for us. And that's because of competition. We think we're in competition with each other. That's why you've seen, you know, the AUM fees get driven all the way, all the way down is because you're just competing against each other, but you're competing against the wrong thing. We should be competing against the mindset of our society, not competing against dollars, basically, if you will. And that's the reason we're not seeing collaboration. How I see collaboration happening is 
we all see a lot of people. We all prospect. There's a lot of people that come in our doors. There's a lot of conversations that we have. And we all know who we really want to work with, right? For me, that is women, minority, LGBTQ, and athlete business owners. That is who I work with, right? Anyone outside of that, I'm going to meet with if I have time. And if I like them and I understand that they want something, I'm going to reach out to my Rolodex, if you will, of planners that I trust, that I would trust with my own money and say, here, Matt, I just met AJ. AJ's amazing. He's not a fit for me, but I really think he's a great fit for you. So why don't we just have an intro convo real quick? You guys hand off and, and go to town. That is one easy, very easy way for us all to collaborate, but it mm-hmm. takes us having conversations with each other first, right? Mm-hmm. I can't just go to Twitter and be like, hey, I got a new client. This is what they're like. And then you just get the just a million of them jumping on you. No, it really should be a relationship. And we all should be in that lack of better term, like a family oriented feel where I'm in a conversation with someone going, man, this doesn't fit me, but this is Matt. This is this, this couple is this family is his and Mm -hmm. I'm going to do everything I can to guide it that way to make sure that they're taken care of while taking care of you as well. And that's the collaboration I want to see on top of the fact that we all have our own specialties, right? Throw that into the mix and we should be unstoppable. There shouldn't be one client that goes without a planner. Well, it's a matter of being selfless and having clarity, right? It's a selfless view and a clarity of what you want and being okay with it. And I think that there is this idea in our industry that we just don't know. And it's and it's not in our industry. It's actually human nature. It's human nature to say, I don't know if I'm going to get another meal. That's like back in the, you know, the olden days, you don't know if you're going to get another meal, you had to have a, you had to be able to be able to kill another animal. And so, you know, you got this mentality, this hunter mentality that, you know, you don't know if you're going to get another meal. So you got to take everybody in. And the mentality that you're saying is a, a world of abundance as opposed to the alternative. And I think that, I think that that is a shift that needs to happen. And, you know, I think you look at the generational shift of wealth, like there's not, it's not a shift of money. It's a number of people that are going to have wealth at that point. $3 million is going to shift to three people, each person with a million. There's going to be a lot of people to serve and we all need to do it together. So I am a huge proponent of that. From your perspective, you know, for that advisor, it's like, yeah, I, I agree with Stoy. Like, let's collaborate, but doesn't really know where to start. How have you gone about building your Rolodex and, and building up your network to be able to have so many op- options for these clients that come see you that aren't your fit? Yeah, I'm loud. I'm out there. I do a lot of things, right? That's first and foremost. And the other thing is just having communications and learning about people, whether it's you go to conferences and you meet them, which is great, or just the connections of other people in the industry go, hey, you really need to meet Matt. I mean, that's literally how we met, right? Is from that type of connection too. And then you just start building on that and you keep building on that and you start to figure out that, oh, there's a lot of people I care about that are awesome in this. I'm not alone. And once you understand that you're not alone, then it's just about hanging out and having those communications. Now, I believe that you have something a little more I guess, helpful than I do. And that's your, the circle thing where I don't really reach out and help and and build people. That's not, you know, my lane, but I'm able to connect those to those. Right. And there's Mm -hmm. multiple ones and that's where we can really get traction because there's a subset of planners and advisors that follow me and that we talk that have never heard your name that Mm -hmm. have, you know, never heard other people's names. And so cool. Now I just dip in and now there's 15 more. And we just keep building and building and building. And we keep going and pushing each other and don't let each other fail out. 
And that's, that's, how, that's how you do that. Yeah, it, again, it's a selfless mentality, right? It's how do I help other people? How do I open up a little bit more for the betterment of everybody else? And we need we need more quality planners because there's so many people out there. And you know, to your mission on, on financial literacy, I, I'm curious on how we've progressed in the past five years on financial literacy. Like how how far have we come recently and how far do we still need to go to get to kind of where you think like, hey, we're, we're good. And, and why is it such a challenge? Where is the, the gap happening from your perspective? Yeah, where have we gone in five years? I think we've made some really good strides. Some of that being because there's more of us doing content. I think that's a huge proponent of it. I'm actually seeing where financial literacy is in schools and starting younger and not as hard to get through. I remember back when I started in 2011, we were trying to bring financial literacy and education into schools as a like a curriculum. And it was like banging on a steel door. Like there's no way to get through. But now you're starting to see those changes and those chinks. And I truly, this always goes one way or another. I loved the pandemic. Okay. I loved it because it forced us to change and adapt. And it really think it hit our industry very, very hard to do so. I've obviously I loathe the pandemic because of everyone dying and all that. So let's be real there. But it forced us to be more virtual. It forced us to do more educational things that are going on from a virtual perspective in social media, right? And I that's where I think the changes happen. Now, where do we and how far do we need to go? Well, it's still not. It doesn't go like English class, math class, science, history, financial literacy. Uh, we need to get to that point. We get to that point. I can feel like we've done a pretty good damn job at that. What was your other question point? To no, that? I think that I, I think the, the other question, I, because I agree with you on all those. And I, I like to load people up with questions because yeah. I don't I tend to forget them after they start talking. Yeah. I want to have them all out there. But what has caused the gap? What has caused the gap in financial literacy? Because like if we can identify the root, maybe the the solution that we're putting in place is more of like a we think it's the right solution, but it may not be. Like what is the root in your opinion of financial illiteracy? Oh man, that's a that could be a really deep question. I don't know if I have that. Um, but I will start with just how America started. I mean, we have slavery, we have women's rights, we have all of those issues are a cause, right? And are a root to the issue. But also the other thing is the CFP specifically, financial planning has only been around for like 50 years. And that's mm. a relatively short period of time in human history. So we've got time as an issue. We've got years of, of suppression that we'll never make up for. Those two things are the really the, the root of it all. How do we attack those? I don't think we can. I don't think we should go yeah. back and pull those layers out. What we do is we understand it, we adapt, and we we start to do what we can now. And that's what we're all, that's what me and you are doing. That's what we're trying to do is not rewrite history, but write a history now that people can go back to. They can reflect on, they can Google, they can find all of that. But our our industry just doesn't have that history either. It's not mm -hmm. been around long enough and it really wasn't written to books. So we have that going against us. Yeah. And I think along with those two, it's also like an access to information and, and role models. I think that that's one of them is for anybody. And I, I also think it's a I don't think enough was put on. I think that the, the story of financial planning and financial literacy has always been analytical and as a right or wrong. But we're dealing with humans, which is psychological. 
and I think that it's been too long that we've avoided that aspect of it, of understanding the psychology aspect of human beings and what spurs them to take action. And I think that finally we're getting some of that access, but it's still, that's still so far behind. Like people are, they don't want to get into that yet so far. I think that's a big challenge. It's a big, big challenge. And in minority communities, I can speak at least on the black culture. We don't talk about money like that. Right? We don't mm-hmm. talk about it. And you can say what you want about the education system and all that. Families themselves don't talk about it. Right. And that's hard. That's going to be, that is a, that's a whole generational culture change that someone has to take that and run with it. And how do you do that? I, I don't have that answer besides stick your neck out and get it done and make sure yeah. you can talk about it. So you're right. It is, it is changing from analytical to psychology and, Everyone's starting to think of, well, then why would I have a financial planner when I can have a, a counselor or something? It's like, because they're not the same. They're, yeah. they're not, like there's crossover, trust me, and you need both, but they're just not the same. But it's a, it's a very tough conversation to have and a and transition in our society that is happening currently, but it's, it's a tough road. There's a merging mindset, right? It has to be a blend of money and psychology. And that, that leads to, you know, my last question before we dive into the final wrap-up questions yep. is, I know you wrote an article about developing a wealth mindset for success. And, and the idea behind the article was everybody of all income levels has the ability to. It's not like a, a money thing necessarily. So talk to me more about what does that mean to develop a wealth mindset for success from your perspective? Absolutely. Wealth does not equal money. Wealth equals happiness, right? You talked about it. You're, you're in the happy business. It's the same. It's, that's what it is. Wealth has nothing to do with money. It is a tool to help you, but it is not what it is. The story, and I bring up, and I think it was in that article, if not, it was in my newsletter, was back in 2011 when I was playing football at uh, Drake University, we went over to Tanzania. And we went over there to play a Mexican all-star team. By the way, they've had football in Mexico as long as we have. Crazy thing. Uh, learned that lesson. But while we're over there, when we first landed, first of all, we we arrived and the celebration was amazing. But as we are getting in the buses, a couple of things that hit me really hard. One, we were surrounded by the National Guard that had AKs and everything openly just protecting us, mainly because we didn't know, but there was a there was a hit on our on American heads from Kenya. While we're driving through the streets, I just was, it was dusk and things were going down and you just noticed the women were sweeping their floors and everyone's like, whoa, what? Okay. They're mud floors. They're mud huts. And I was just like humbled because they're out there sweeping mud floors, yet I don't even sweep my own floor. Um, And I I recognize that, and they're happy. They were the happiest people that I've honestly been around. And they don't have a tenth, a hundredth, a millionth of what we have, right? They don't have all clean water. They have mud floors. They don't have, you know, ability for fresh food all the time. And, you know, they're in Africa where it's hotter than hell. Like they don't have these, but they were happy. And that is when I realized that wealth does not mean money. It means happiness and your ability to give to others and take care of your family. And that's the wealthy mindset. When you can start to transition to that, that's when you don't care as much about money. You don't care that, oh, I got to take off a week of work. You don't have that angst of, oh, no, it's Sunday night. I've got to go to work. You're just happy, right? And happiness equals wealth. Yeah, I uh, 
Couldn't be more aligned with you on that. I love that, man. And what a great story about you and, and the Tanzia story. That's an eye-opening story. Before I let you go, I mean, we could talk for hours about yeah, all this stuff, cool. happiness. I mean, we talked, you know, this is now going on a couple hours from, you know, your podcast and our podcast. So I always like to ask all of the guests on Bridging the Gap of, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm constantly curious and want to learn from people that are much smarter than me. And I do that by reading. I love reading is one way I do it. So I always like to ask my guests, what's one book out there that you think everybody should read if they haven't or reread if they've already read it before? Yes, absolutely. So let me pull it up because I'm a very terrible with names and titles. So I didn't want to forget this. And it's one I'm currently reading. It is called Purpose, The Purpose Factor by Brian and I cannot pronounce her name, Brian Boucher, um, if you will. And it is phenomenal. Even someone who... I thought I knew all my purpose, right? It aligns you to understanding who you are, what you really want to accomplish, regardless of the factors that are out in life, right? Our purpose seems to be aligned, right? I can, I can get that feeling. And so our purpose is aligned, but what did it take to get there? And we alluded to that a little bit on my podcast with you of, it took you some time and some failures to get to where you figured out your purpose. So it's phenomenal. No matter what industry, whatever it is, the purpose factor by the Bouchers. I love that. The purpose factor. I might have to get that on the shelf and start reading it. That's amazing. Last thing I want to leave our audience with is, you know, we talked about a lot and, you know, I always hope to leave someone with actionable insights or actionable advice. And so what's the one thing that's actionable that you hope our listeners take away from our conversation today where we talked about so much? Yeah, I hope it motivates them to take that next, that, that step. I, I believe there's a lot of them on the fence that have listened and are watching and want to take that next step to become, uh, I guess, more involved with the emotions. I hope this motivates them enough to take that step and to move forward. My saying in life is you win some, you lose some, but just keep moving forward. Yep. You can't accomplish the next thing if you don't take the next step. So keep it going, man. Story Hall, you are an incredible person. Glad to have you part of our industry and our team here as well. Uh, I know that many people are going to be inspired by you and your story and want to continue following you, whether they want to work with you, interact with you, be part of your Rolodex. What's the best way for people to stay involved and continue to follow you and get connected with you? Absolutely. You can find me in all the social medias. So go ahead. I'm on all of them. But as simple as just going to blackmammoth.com and emailing me is very easy too. But you can hit us up on all the socials. I'll be there. And you're communicating to me. So I'll be the one uh, messaging right back. I love it. Stoy Hall, keep doing the good work you're doing, my friend. And let's keep this thing going. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 